0: well good morning that song is particularly appropriate for our text this morning and I trust you'll see why as we get into it there's really it's probably more than two but there's at least two things that immediately come to mind when I think of what can steal our joy what maybe robs our joy one of them we read about in our scripture reading this morning and it's that overarching one of sin where David prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The other one becomes readily apparent in this story we come to in Matthew 19. You can turn there, the end of Matthew 19, and it doesn't end there. I've told you that chapter numbers are very helpful, but sometimes they get in the way. We're going to pretend a chapter doesn't exist, there is a chapter 20, but we're going to Ignore those numbers in that break, and we're going to go right into the first 16 verses of chapter 20. Here in this text, we really end up with a story within a story, as Jesus addresses the disciples, addresses Peter's question, and then begins a parable to help emphasize and illustrate his fact and his point. Now, before we go any further, I have a question this morning. And this question I'm going to start with is for the children. The rest of you can eavesdrop. How would you respond if it was your birthday and you had been wanting a present very much? Everybody gathers around you. You've got 10, 15, 20, 100 of your closest friends. You open your present and it's exactly what you wanted. You're thrilled. But as soon as you're done with that, your parents immediately hand out presents to every one of your friends. They all open it, and they all got either the exact same thing or something they wanted very much. How would you respond? Would you be happy for them? Or would you perhaps begrudgingly wonder, why are they getting a present on my birthday? Or how about this? Your parents told you that if you will clean their car, their very dirty car, they'll pay you five dollars. You set out to do it, and it's a hot summer day. It was really muddy. The inside was really dirty. About halfway done, maybe a couple hours into it, a friend joins you and makes it a little bit easier. You're working together, and then just as you're about to finish, a few minutes before you finish, a sibling shows up, a brother or sister, and they help you as well. And y'all were having fun. You were spraying each other with water. You were laughing. Your parents come out. They inspect it, and everything looks great. They pull out the $5, but instead of giving it to you, they give it to your brother or sister who came right before the job was done. Then they turn to your friend who came halfway through and they give them $5. When they turn to you, what do you expect? I mean, you were there for four hours. You were working in the heat of the sun. Are you more concerned about what you're going to get or are you rejoicing in what was given to your friend and to your sibling? Are you thinking, wow, mom and dad are so generous? Or are you thinking, I hope I get more? As humans, we are quite sensitive to the idea of fairness, especially when it involves us. You don't have to teach someone to recognize what is quote-unquote fair for them. And we never seem to grow out of this. Just look at the world around us. It seems to be almost in the headlines frequently now. And in the story we'll look at this morning in Matthew 19 and the beginning of 20, we are confronted again with an overdeveloped sense of fairness. And how this self-centered view of fairness has no place in the kingdom of God. Doesn't belong at all. Justice and righteousness, yes. Fairness, at least our perspective of fairness, no. It doesn't belong. And what we'll learn this morning is actually one of the great secrets to contentment in this life. If you have wondered, like I have, how do I how do I fight discontentment? How do I fight this feeling of life's not fair or things are difficult or I'm not. Why is God doing this to me? Why are my friends doing this to me? Why are my coworkers doing this to me? Why is it not fair? If you struggle with this type of discontentment in life, then this passage is for you. It's for me. So let's pray as we open it up this morning and look at it together. Father, we just thank you for this morning. And thank you for the words that we've sung, the promises, and the hope that we've already read about from Psalm 32. Father, as we will be reminded this morning, your mercy is more abundant. Your grace is manifested far greater than we could ever imagine. Father, help us as we are prone to discontentment, prone to feelings of unfairness. Father, help us to put on these kingdom glasses to be able to view the world around us our interactions with our fellow believers, and most importantly, our relationship with you rightly. In your name, amen. As we look at the text this morning, there's really three kind of scenes. The first one is before the story within a story, before the parable begins, They are at the end of chapter 19, it's in verses 27 through 30, and then the final two scenes are going to be within the parable itself. And it opens in this first scene with Peter, and and let me read it for you. Peter, in verse 27, says to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter, after having heard Jesus' comments about this rich young ruler in the preceding verses, wants to know okay, but what's in it for us and the disciples? And so Jesus answers him. But Jesus wants to carefully define his answer, so he provides what we'll see is this parable in chapter 20. Parable which has two parts. A hiring of vineyard workers and then the paying of these vineyard workers. But what he does in these verses and in this section is further define How things, how people, how works, how all of this are valued in the kingdom of heaven. We saw several weeks ago the uniqueness of how kingdom worth is calculated. Around who or what is most important in the kingdom of God. Recognizing that it's the most needy. Those who are hurting the most, that are the most spiritually sick, are the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now... We learn that when it comes to reward within the kingdom, it's just as topsy-turvy. Now, before we get much into this first scene that we encounter, we need to set the, set the context. You may remember from a couple weeks ago the story of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus, having fastidiously followed the law, or so he thought. We even peeled that back a bit and realized he had rather a rather high view and estimation of himself, but humanly speaking, he had done a great job. And he came to Jesus, though, because of this consternation, this unsettledness, this lack of security and confidence that he was going to inherit the kingdom of God. And so he came to Jesus asking, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be certain that I will inherit the kingdom of God? And so Jesus told him, go and sell all you have, or at least that's where he ended up after kind of working through following the commandments and really setting them up to show that he hadn't followed them. But Jesus tells him, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. But this was too much for this rich young ruler. And the real lessons had nothing to do with selling everything to earn salvation. That wasn't it at all. There are plenty of wealthy followers of Jesus who were never given that command. Jesus' good friend Lazarus was rather wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea was a faithful disciple who was very wealthy. There were many wealthy women who supported Jesus' ministry. Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Susanna, and many others are listed in Luke 8. And so wealth wasn't the problem. It wasn't a blanket command to every disciple, go and sell every single thing you have. No, what was Jesus getting at? Instead of Jesus' response, he taught two important lessons. One, the real issue is the heart and one's affections. Just as was referenced in their call to worship, in the Old Testament, on multiple occasions, God would say, "I don't want your worthless sacrifices." Why? This makes it abundantly clear in Isaiah 1 and Hosea 6:6. 6, 6. He wants a heart that is fully and wholly devoted to him. In other words, what do you truly love? that's what Jesus was getting at what do you truly love because if the rich young ruler had known of anything it was that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your soul with all your heart and with all your might but the fact that he couldn't sell his possessions revealed what was already within his heart but there was a second lesson and it was really a lesson more for those hearing than for the rich young ruler himself, and that was that you cannot earn your way to heaven. No matter how many good works you do, as this young rich ruler had done, it is only by the mercy and the grace of God. Salvation is supernatural. And the disciples, watching and hearing this interaction, conversing with Jesus afterwards, they're still struggling to wrap their heads around this concept. You see that in verse 25, where it says, they were astonished. They were taken aback. They couldn't fully grapple at that moment what Jesus was saying. And so wanting to clarify things a bit, Peter speaks up in verse 27. And he speaks up on behalf of the group, as is often the case. And what he says, as we've already read it this morning, may make you cringe a little bit makes you kind of want to melt into the walls around how can you ask that of Jesus who are you to go up to Jesus and say what's in it for us makes you want to hide under the covers or at least get out of the way of the lightning because it comes across at least in our English translations it comes across as really self-serving and very awkward and there is a bit of this there Jesus does provide a gentle rebuke But what Jesus recognized is that Peter's big problem and the, the problem for the disciples is that they've been raised in a system that expected works to earn favor with God. Even if they intrinsically knew or some of the teaching got through that it's not just works, still works earn favor with God. And if an extremely rich person had to give up everything in order to follow Jesus and to ensure security then how could they possibly compare? Yeah, they had left everything, but compared to the rich young ruler, it wasn't very much. Peter left a good bit in terms of a fishing enterprise with several boats. Matthew was a tax collector. John was likely related to, or at least his family were friends with a ruling religious class. So it's not like they were all living in poverty, but compared to the rich young ruler, They had not left very much. And so, Peter's question, while maybe a bit self serving, I think it betrays a real concern he had that they hadn't yet left enough. They haven't done enough to earn entrance into the kingdom of God. What do we need to do to ensure that we have entrance into the kingdom of God? We've left everything. Do we have eternal security? Can we have this security? And Jesus' response to Peter's what I believe is a cry for assurance is a gentle rebuke because Peter's thinking is still wrong because he still has within it the idea of earning. I've left everything. I've done everything I need to have the kingdom, or at least I think I have. So what's, what's going to happen to us? Jesus is sensitive enough to the disciples' need for assurance, and he's going to give it. But he doesn't just make it about the disciples. And he also wants to correct, once and for all, this joy-stealing focus on works. What we might call legalism. Now, verse 28 is kind of fun. Because Jesus' answer to Peter's question, think about what Jesus just asked. I've left everything. Can I have assurance that I'll enter the kingdom uh, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? Jesus' answer doesn't even begin to compare with the question. Here they are just wanting to ensure entrance. Can we get through the gate? And Jesus says, oh yeah, and there's a lot more waiting for you. Verse 28 gives a brief glimpse into the age to come, but really not much more than that. There's other passages that will give us greater glimpses, longer glimpses. But like when flying in a plane trying to make out the mountains below or the scenery below and the clouds break for just a moment and you get a quick glimpse of the ground. And it may be something amazing. You may say to the person sitting next to you, look, look, look. But it quickly covers back up by the clouds again. You got a good quick glimpse, but there's so many details you can't make out in this little glimpse. That's what we have going on here. This is a quick snapshot Jesus' promises that there is a time coming, a time for regeneration, where he will sit on his glorious throne. The apostles will sit on thrones as well. This is far beyond what Peter has asked for. For the confidence of entrance, now Jesus is talking about him being on a throne, judging, ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. This time of regeneration is described a number of different ways in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it includes the restoration of heavens and earth. It is a future time, and it involves the reign, the return, and the reign of Christ. At the Last Supper, Jesus said that He would appoint a kingdom for the apostles, and they would sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes, reiterating this promise, giving them a little bit longer glimpse. And that judging, again, that's often a term for ruling. But what exactly this judging or this ruling involves, it's not described here. And to be fair, it's only observed opaquely elsewhere. But there is more, and we'll actually get to some of that as we get further into Matthew. But Jesus doesn't dwell on that, and there's a reason he doesn't dwell on that. It's because that wasn't the main point. He wants to blow Peter away with his assurance, he drops a bomb on him, a bomb of assurance. (laughs) It's like, you want assurance? Let me give it to you. You're not just going to enter into the gate and sneak in. You're going to be seated on a throne. And that's why he talks about thrones and ruling here, to knock Peter back a bit with this assurance so that he can then shift. He promises them an important rule or role Excuse me, in the coming kingdom. He highlights that the grace of God is much greater than Peter or the disciples seem to realize. That's the point. That's why he overdoes it with the answer. You have so far underestimated the mercy and the grace of God, Peter, that you aren't even beginning to ask for what I have in store for you. As a father who gives good gifts to his children, I have so much more in store for you. And then in verse 29, he says, and opens this and broadens this to everyone, not only do I have it in store for you who have literally dropped and left everything, but for all who are my disciples, who count it all as loss to follow me. You have so far underestimated my grace and my mercy. Everyone, Jesus says in verse 29, who makes sacrifices in this life will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Hudson Taylor, an early missionary to China, gave up his family, his home, his friends, any source of reliable income, suffered in many, many different ways. Here's the statement he had about his life. He said that he was never able, never succeeded in actually making any sacrifice for God. Now, humanly speaking, he gave up more than probably most of us ever will in this life. How is it then that he could say he had never succeeded in making any sort of sacrifice in this life for God? Well, he, he answers, and it's that he found so much blessing any time he gave anything up that he felt himself far better off rather than worse off for having given whatever it was, for having sacrificed whatever it was. And that's just in this life. That's just a foretaste of what is to come in the eternal life or the kingdom of heaven. Job, through his obedience and his righteousness, received twofold, it says at the end of Job, double everything he had before the suffering came. But according to Mark, which is a parallel passage here, Mark adds a bit, a note here that Matthew did not relate to us, which is in Mark 10:30, Jesus says, not only will it be greater, it'll be a hundred times greater. Take Job, multiply it by 50 more. It's really just hyperbole it's incomprehensible how much greater Jesus finishes this general correction of Peter and the disciples by offering a somewhat enigmatic that is a mysterious statement in verse 30 but many who are first will be last and the last first now it, it may not seem like a mysterious statement to us today because it's become such a common statement I mean, even those persons who've just grown up around the church, they may not even be believers. You'll hear him saying, first is last, or the last will be first. It's become axiomatic. Often used the exact opposite of what it actually means, but still very common. But what this statement means and why it's so important for a disciple of Jesus Christ is a mystery when he first says this in verse 30. He's about to teach us something about the kingdom, something that we could not otherwise know. And it's here that Jesus provides Peter with the answer to joy in this life. How do you have contentment? How do you have joy? How do you avoid this, letting the circumstances of this life rob it from you? How do you have this ongoing Assurance. Well, you need to understand something, Peter. You need to understand how you can have that assurance. You need to understand that it's all wrapped up in the grace and the mercy of God. So let me give you an example. In verse these first sixteen verses of Matthew twenty, Jesus provides Peter with this parable, really to all the disciples, all those who are hearing. It's almost as if he said, "Let me tell you a story." The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Right away, this is like, lets us know, this is not an allegory, it's more of a metaphor. It's similar to something, not the same as something. So he wants to teach us some principle of the kingdom from what's going on here. That means every little detail and facet doesn't have some meaning, we have to find out, every time of day reference doesn't have some special meaning. We don't need to figure out what exactly the vineyard meant. It was a vineyard. And so in this parable, this story, this metaphor that's going to teach us something about the kingdom of God, usually one primary thing, although you might get some additional second and tertiary concepts taught, it talks about a landowner who goes out early in the morning. Now, what that does is that lets us know kind of the, the time of day he's going out and the fact that he's going out to hire workers is probably not from negligence on his part. Rather, it's telling us it's harvest season. In fact, it makes sense. He sends them out to work in the vineyard. It, you know, Harvest season was a busy time. They would work 10, 12-hour days easily, working from sunup to sundown. That's when you would need to augment your labor force to get it all done in time before it rotted on the vine or fell off or birds came and grabbed it all. And so you would go and add workers to your workforce. And they would need these extra workers for all sorts of various tax, tasks. Guarding the crops. You know, As they pull it off and stack it, they don't want somebody coming up and taking off bushels of Grapes. Driving the donkeys, pressing the grapes if they're making wine, collecting the juice, preparing them for the fermentation process, drying grapes, and any number of other tasks. There were a lot of them. It was hard work, it was long days, it was exhausting. You had to drag yourself home afterward. And day laborers, outside of slaves, were among the lowest social group from a socioeconomic standpoint. And they would gather in the marketplace of towns early in the morning, hoping to be hired. It was really a precarious existence. They lived day by day. They would have understood very much what Jesus said when he said, give us this day our daily bread. They knew what it was like to live day by day for sustenance. Early in the morning, sunrise, would have, by the Roman standard of keeping time, been somewhere around 6 a.m. So he heads into the marketplace, and he meets up with some of these day workers to hire them, offers them a denarius. Doesn't mean a lot to us. We don't use denarii. But that's a day's wage. It's what you would need for a day's worth of sustenance and to make sure that you had a roof over your head, food on the table, enough clothing that one pair of clothing over you and your family. It was just enough to get by with everything you needed to live day by day. So it was a very fair wage. It was exactly what was needed. And there's nothing really remarkable yet. That's really what a fair and just landowner would have done, is not trying to take advantage of them, wants to give them a fair wage. But the story doesn't end there. You notice after he's done that, at the third hour, six plus three, okay, nine o'clock, We're now nine in the morning, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go to the vineyard. Whatever is right, whatever is just, whatever is fair, I'll give it to you. So they went. Doesn't say what they were going to get, but you would assume they said, Okay, that's three hours gone in the day. I'm going to get, you know, that much less, maybe 25% less of a denarii. I'll get 75% of a denarii. But it doesn't stop there. Again, the landowner goes out. The sixth hour; it's now noon. And then he does it the ninth hour. It's now three p.m. And he did the exact same thing. Now, you may wonder why is he doing this? Did he miscalculate the amount of workers he needed? I think it has to do with the generosity of this landowner, who is not wishing any to perish. But wanting all to be able to survive. Well, surely he's done. It's 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Their work day's almost over. He's got to be winding things down. But he makes one more trip to the marketplace. And he finds another group. and if you notice before he got to this group, if you went back up to the sixth and the ninth hour and to the third hour he seems to be getting everybody that's in the marketplace and sending them to the vineyard. In other words, when he leaves the marketplace, there's nobody left standing there. And yet each time he comes back, it's almost as if some have heard that there's this landowner who is generous, who is gracious, who is hiring. But he shows back up at this 11th hour. If you've ever wondered where the term the 11th hour came from, you now know. So the 11th hour, it's right before 6 o'clock. It's now 5 p.m., he shows up and he finds some more standing idle. So, why have you been standing here idle? He said, nobody's hired us. Now, where they've been getting, trying to be hired, how they've been going about it, we don't know, but now they've showed up to the place that this landowner is hiring and they go to get hired. He says, go to the vineyards. So they go. There's no discussion of wages. They just go. Well, evening comes. The owner, literally the lord of the vineyard, said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Again, nothing unique, nothing special about this. This was exactly what was expected. This is what a fair and just landowner would do. In fact, Leviticus 19.13, Deuteronomy 24.15, very clearly say, do not deprive the day laborer his wages. Pay him at the evening. Otherwise, there will be guilt upon you, sin upon you. Judgment will be visited upon you. So pay them. Do what's right. So he does that. He calls them together. What's interesting, though, is that he gives an extra set of instructions. I want you to do something for them. When you pay them, I want you to kind of reverse the order. I want you to pay the last first and the first last. This is kind of the second time we get that first is last and last is first concept. And so they... He, call, he begins to call them over at 6 o'clock. I don't know that they had those triangles or cowbells, but they ring them in. They bring them in to begin paying them, and he pays his first group. First come in, and what's you can imagine they're jogging over. They're not tired or exhausted at all. In fact, they haven't even broken a sweat yet. And they show up, and what does he do? It's shocking. It's it's exorbitant. It's incredibly gracious and merciful. They've worked one hour of a day, and yet he doesn't want them to go hungry. He wants their families cared for, he wants to ensure that they have enough to survive. He gives them their daily bread, he gives them a denarii, he pays them that denarius. And it's only because of this that it makes what happens in verses 10 and 11, I'm going to say it's only because of this and our own sinful way of thinking that what happens next is shocking. Because then we don't see the other groups who were hired, but they didn't seem to have too much of an issue. We would assume they received the same denarius. But it's that last group that is placed in contrast to the first because the first come. They're standing in line, Huffing and puffing, drenched in sweat, and they began to grumble. Why do they grumble? Because when the first came, they thought, after observing the graciousness, the mercy of the landowner, the way he treated them, that they would receive more, more than what they had agreed to, more than the denarius. But to each of them, he also gave a denarius. And there that grumbling begins. Saying these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. We have worked and we have earned this. We deserve this. Now stop and think for a second. Again, as we think about the kingdom of God. a concept of deserving, I deserve to have this. It was only the mercy and the grace of the landowner that they were even there to begin with. When they woke up that morning, they had nothing. They had no hope of sustenance. They had no job. They had no future. How quickly, how quickly we develop the attitude of deserving, of being owed, of having rights. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear as a believer, as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we give up our rights. We lay them aside. We deserve nothing. And yet we are stubborn. We have trouble learning this lesson. Perhaps in a bit of irony, Jesus addresses one who is a spokesman for the group. Sound familiar? Now, he calls him friend in the rebuke. I think it's because, again, he's not casting them out. He still receives the exact same reward, the same payment as all the others. He hasn't cast them away. He hasn't gotten rid of them. Still a rebuke, but he's a little gentler about it. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I've given you everything I promised. Why do you want more? It was only his extreme generosity to the last that suddenly made them ungrateful. Think about how sad that is. And again, let's turn that inward. How sad it is that we respond in frustration, and discontentment, as we compare ourselves and our lives to others. As we look at what others have and say, Lord, why, why don't I struggle like they do? Why have you made it easier for them? Why have you given them this? Why am I going through this situation? Has he not given us everything he's promised? Has he withheld any good thing from us? Do we not trust him? Again, what ends up happening when we ask that? So we begin to question the generosity. We begin to question the mercy. We begin to question the grace of God. When we ask him why he hasn't given us something else beyond what he's promised, it's to question the mercy and the grace of God. And we do it every time we complain. And the reason we so often complain is because we compare ourselves not To what we deserve, because what do we really deserve, each and every one of us, at the end of the day? If we're honest with ourselves and we are honest about how holy and good and right and just God is, what do we deserve at the end of the day? It's death, it's judgment, it's punishment, because we have offended a holy God and we do it each and every day. We cannot earn his favor. Even as a believer, you cannot earn his favor. Are there things we should be doing as a believer? Absolutely, but you cannot earn his favor or any more of his favor. And yet we question that goodness. We question that grace as we grumble and we complain. So the landowner tells him, just like the rest, take what is yours and go. Go. But I wish to give this last man, this last group of men, the same as you. He kind of asks this. You can almost see the back turning of that first group as he just makes a final comment saying, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Literally, do you have an evil eye because I am generous? you may remember, and I realize you've got to go back quite a ways, but to Matthew 6, we talked about in 622 and 23 that evil eye, and it's in that context of miserliness or greediness all throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, in the ancient Near East and Greek culture, an evil eye was often associated with greed and selfishness. Have you turned your eyes so inwardly your own wickedness. Have you become so greedy? All because I am gracious and merciful and generous? So the last will be first and the first last. The owner corrects him. No law has been broken. No promise has been rescinded. There is no problem whatsoever Unless you begin to try and compare yourself to others. Just as Peter had done. Comparing himself to the rich young ruler. Just as we do when we compare our situations to others. We take our eyes off of Christ. To borrow Peter again. When he stepped out of that boat and had his eyes fixed on Christ, there was no problem. But when he took it off of him, began to compare and look at the circumstances around him, that fear engulfed him and he began to sink In a similar, not same way, but in a similar way, when we take our eyes off of Christ, begin to compare our circumstances to those around us, we begin to fall into sin, to all sorts of sin. We must learn to have the economy of Christ, the measurement of Christ, the measurement of rule. Our desire should not be our own gain. Here's the other question that comes into play. Why? Why could that first group not be excited for the last group? Did they really want that last group to go hungry and starve? I mean, it wasn't hurting them. It didn't affect them one way or the other. They just got upset. Were they really so evil-eyed, greedy, that they wanted them to hurt? Is that really what you want when you begin to compare your situations? You want so-and-so to suffer like you suffer? Do you really want the person sitting next to you to have the same struggles you have? Instead, our focus should be on rejoicing at the grace and the mercy of God, of praying for one another, taking our eyes off of ourselves, rejoicing when the Lord blesses those around us. God's grace makes Some who are last first. The point of the parable, again, is not that every single person in the kingdom will receive the same reward. They'll all receive entrance. But that the kingdom rewards depend entirely upon God's sovereign grace. He can do whatever he wants with what is his. And guess what? Everything in this world and every one of us seated here in this room this morning are his. He can do what he wants. We should not, must not, cannot begrudge him. The master's actions here are only difficult to accept if we take our eyes off of his kindness toward us and try to compare ourselves to others. As the first group stands in line for their wages, they're at first thankful. You can imagine they're rejoicing over a master who hired them, gave them meaningful work, promised them fair reward, but then their gaze falters. They took their eyes off of the kindness of the master and compared themselves to others. They thought they deserved. They thought they earned it. They forgot that they brought nothing to their current circumstance. They merely were called to work in the vineyard. It was the mercy, the grace, and the compassion from a generous, kind, and loving landowner. Here's the secret for joy. There is no place in God's way of thinking for joy trying to create one's own legacy, for trying to make a name for oneself, for trying to promote ourselves, to try and compete, to try and compare, to try and act arrogantly toward those around us. Even the unique apostles who during the regeneration will sit on thrones as they judge the 12 tribes of Israel are in final and ultimate terms simply laborers in the vineyard like every other believer in Jesus Christ. Now how the Lord chooses to reward us in eternity, he can do whatever he wants. How he chooses to use us and reward us in this life, he can do whatever he wants. The question for you this morning is are you going to remind yourself daily of the grace and mercy of God that is far exceeding, exceeds beyond anything you could ask or think. Because that's what he's given you. He has not simply given you a denarius, a day's wage in eternity. He'll take care of your daily needs. He's promised that. But what he has promised for us is beyond anything we could ask or think. We need to fix our eyes on him. Just as the writer of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith nowhere else, not comparing ourselves to others, and it's in fixing our eyes on Christ that we will have great joy. It's in fixing our eyes on Christ that we'll be reminded of the grace and the mercy of God, that we'll remember, I brought nothing to this situation. I am only standing here, only even able to work because of the grace and the mercy of God. And if you're here this morning and Your answer to the question of are you going to heaven or not is I think I've done enough. I want you to hear that there, at the risk of overstating there is no greater heresy you could say because you can never do enough. No, what the answer is for you is to cry out in mercy to God to that great and abundant mercy knowing that just like the landowner there is not one he will turn away. He is patient towards all, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And if you have not repented and cried out to him, come find me afterwards. Find one of the other men you've seen up here this morning or one of those persons sitting next to you and ask them, and they would love to share with you the promises of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder The reminder of your goodness, your mercy, your grace. Father, help us to live as if we really are thankful, as if we really are resting in the assurance and the promises that our salvation, our hope is in you and you alone, not in anything we can do, and that we have received and will receive far beyond anything we can ask or think. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. To you.